Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Fancy Scientist podcast. I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, and this episode is a continuation of my series all about my elephant research. I did this research when I was doing my dissertation at the University of Missouri starting in 2006. I studied African forest elephants, and today hopefully is going to be the last part, and it is a good one. I originally came up with this and thought I would do a two-part episode, but I've just realized I have so many stories from the field and just such interesting things happened to me, and I had so many challenges while doing my field work and just a dissertation in general. So it's it's now a five part series. This is, I believe, the fifth one. So today we're gonna talk about the last time I ended with, or I mostly talked about the story that happened to me at the field station, and it involved an aggressive animal encounter. So if you haven't heard that story, then go ahead and make sure you check out this last episode. So today I am going to talk about why I think that animal was so aggressive. Actually, I had, I had two experiences that um, involved aggressive animals, both, both of the same species. So we're going to talk about that today, my theories behind it. I'm going to talk about that mountain lion viral video real quick too and relate it to the aggressive interactions that I had with the species when I was in Gabon. And then I'm going to talk about some other stories from the field, some other cool wildlife that I saw, and finally end with what it's like to do lab work with dung samples, how that whole process works, how you get the DNA out of the dung. We'll go over that in brief, too. So let's go ahead and run the intro music, and I'm just so excited to Hi, get into this. I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. First, I want to start about animals being aggressive in general. And I actually want to start with the incident, the video that went viral this past week. It involved a hiker in Utah and a mountain lion. You can also call them cougars, pumas, all the same animal. And this hiker had video of this mountain lion um, conducting this incredible display of aggression. And I actually did a YouTube video on this. I can link here. But a lot of people misunderstood that aggression. A lot of news outlets and, of course, the public on Twitter, they took it to be that this animal was stalking the person in a predatory way. When it comes to animals in general, and my YouTube video clarifies that, so um, make sure you go ahead and check that out for the real reason why that cat was asking, acting that way. But today we're going to focus on elephants. But before we begin, I just wanted to talk about aggressive animals in general. Why do animals become aggressive? So for the most part, animals 
want to leave you alone, like really, really want to leave you alone. They don't want to get in fights because fights are costly for them. For example, if you have two males fighting over a female, the reward of getting to mate with that female is so great that these males will risk their lives. So aggression is very costly. If an animal gets injured, it can affect their ability to get food um, and to quite literally survive. The things that we do as humans, therefore, impact animals. And often when you have aggressive animals encounters or you see these aggressive animal encounters on video, it usually has to do with the human and not the animal. There are exceptions. I'll give you one example of an exception, but usually what's happening is that the human has gotten into their space. A lot of times for pictures, for selfies, um, selfies especially, I have a blog post about this, that people will get too close to the animal to get this amazing photo. And in some cases, they actually kill the animal. Like there's instances of people on beaches catching baby dolphins and then trying to get selfies so they all crowd around the dolphin. And in some cases, the baby has died. So a lot of times animals get blamed for these interactions and they get seen as aggressive predators and something to be fearful when you go out into the woods. Now, I spent six months in Utah. I never even saw one mountain lion. You're not going to have interactions like that. Now, if you watched my last video, you will have discovered that I had aggressive interactions with elephants, with forest elephants, both um, in terms of them charging me in the forest. And then I had some a really interesting experience of one quite literally trying to break into my room at night. And I was not doing anything to provoke these animals. So why in the world would they be so aggressive towards me? Actually, before I get into that, I want to talk about the exception of where animals might be aggressive towards you. And it doesn't have to do anything with you as much as being in the wrong place at, at the wrong time. So when you accidentally get too, too close to them, for example, like running into the forest, as I did with the elephants, but also... If you come across animals who are fighting, a lot of times they can take that aggression out on you. So we actually had an incident at the field station. This was way before I got there where a researcher found two African buffalo and they were in the midst of fighting. And the losing animal was very frustrated, very upset about losing and saw her and came after her and gored her with with his horns. And this woman was so injured, she had to crawl back to camp. So that's a situation where, yes, she was close to the animal in terms of being in the proximity, but I'm sure she wasn't getting close to the animals in terms of taking a picture or trying to increase. She was. She just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Okay, so back to my elephants. The elephants in Lope and Luongo National Park are notorious for being aggressive. So why would that be? And if you've listened to me talk before, on this podcast, I've talked about the elephants in Amboseli National Park in Kenya, which um, seem like the nicest elephants in the world. They are just so peaceful, so gentle. Again, you don't want to harass them, but if you stop your car and they're crossing, they seem to be like coming towards your direction. A lot of times they will just like cross gently right in front of your car and you can be, get very close to them. 
Okay, so these elephants that I was studying, they ran away from me all the time. And um, again, they were very aggressive. So why do I think this was? For the aggression overall, it likely has to do with poaching. So the elephants are hunted illegally for their tusks. This is poaching. And the tusks are taken for ivory to be used in carvings in unnecessary things like statues, jewelry. Nobody needs these things. And the elephants are are killed purely for this. So often the elephants are killed and you find or people will find the dead body and that the tusks will be hacked off. So it's incredibly, incredibly sad. So there's been waves of poaching throughout Africa and there's there's kind of two theories about why the elephants in Lope are so aggressive. That it's possible that in the first place they were being poached. And usually when, when elephants are being poached, they run from you and you're not going to see them as much. They're going to hide a lot. And so maybe that's what happened to begin with. And then as poaching maybe alleviated, maybe they became more confident and just like started to like hate people. And therefore, when they saw people, they approached them and, you know, made sure that they got out of the way. So that's one theory about why the Lope elephants are so aggressive. Another is that if you if you turn into episode, I'll have to look it up what episode, but it was the first episode about my elephant field work talking about savanna elephants and their family group is really important to their survival. So another theory is that African forest elephants moms were mostly killed or or even the the males were mostly killed too because they actually are really important for social relationships as well. And this makes sense because the adults are targeted because they have larger tusks and therefore some people think there were like generations of elephants that that grew up without without their their mothers. So the so the moms stay with the calves for a very long time and Therefore, they didn't really know how to grow up properly around humans. And for the males, when there's older males in the population, there have been studies that show that that their behavior actually suppresses crazy behavior in younger males. It kind of they kind of like teach them how to behave and it involves hormonal responses. But if you don't have any older moms in the population teaching their kids, teaching their calves how to be a great elephant, and you don't have any older males keeping those young males in place, then you're gonna have or you might have a potentially aggressive population. The hard thing that, or the thing that I can't figure out though, is that there are lots of parks in across, or, um, across Central Africa where elephant poaching is really high and has been high. And the elephants are not necessarily as aggressive in those parks. They might just run. So it's still not clear to me why the the Lope elephants and the Luongo elephants are so aggressive. But part of it appears to be that they've reclaimed their, their stake in their habitat. They're taking it back and they are taking a stand against humans. Now, there is the second incident that I talked about where an elephant um, attacked my room. There were at least two elephants that night. I know that because I could hear 
different elephants. So I could hear an elephant in the front of my cabin and in the back of my cabin. And the next morning, I collected dung from those elephants. So we had an adult defecate and a calf defecate. And you can tell the size of the dung by the bolus size, which we actually measure. But you can just look at it and see, like, you know, which one's a young individual when it's a big difference. So I knew that last night there was at least a mother and calf elephant, maybe more. And... What could have happened is that there was a male elephant as well, and he was maybe the one causing all the destruction because he was in something called musk. Must, sorry, (laughs) must. And what must is, is a heightened hormonal state, so of the male hormones, testosterone, and it makes them more competitive for mates. And females are actually attracted to males who are in must. And it basically, they just, you know, they just act more aggressive. They're more bold. They're more confident. They're, of course, attempting to mate females a lot. But this aggression, when it's not placed well, and they will, they will also um, use it to compete with other males over the females. So that's why they need that heightened aggression, that heightened testosterone to help them. They might take it out on just like other things. So they might just be like, you know, angry or all amped up. And sometimes they will do some destructive things like go after cars, or just other structures that humans have built. So another explanation for for what happened, or actually an explanation for what happened that night, the the explanation that makes the most sense is that that these elephants, at least one of them, was in must. Because in the forest, when you get charged by an by an elephant, it's because you're in their space and they and they you maybe didn't see them, you didn't hear them, or they even came across you. So they're trying to get you out. But in the case with us sleeping at the field station, I had been sleeping in my cabin for, you know, weeks at that time. And the field station has been there for 25 years. And this never happened to anyone. So that's what I think happened, that there was a male who was (laughs) angry. Maybe he wasn't getting his female and he took it out on our field station. The reason why I don't blame like food or anything, because elephants can be attracted to like scents or food, obviously, but there wasn't any food in my cabin and they went all over. I think if they were mostly after food, they would have stayed in the kitchen area and really have gone there. The other interesting thing is that I had elephant dung samples. <laughs> it was it was in solutions to preserve them in a duffel bag in my room. And some of us joked that the elephants knew I was collecting their poop and were upset by it and wanted to teach me a lesson. But I totally think that or that's a joke. We have that that just is far fetched, but we had fun with that one. The last time we left off, I was also talking about my first field season. I returned in 2010 to Gabon for a second field season. And this field season, it started off the same as the last one, but it changed a lot, not in terms of the elephants, not in terms of the ecology, but in terms of the management of the field station. There was a new director at the time, 
And he replaced the field station director who had been there for a long time. And she was amazing with interim directors who had no experience or very little experience in Gabon. And they did not take the wildlife of Gabon seriously. Like they actually didn't think the elephants were that aggressive. A lot of them had been in South Africa before and just, you know, thought that they're elephants, they'll charge you. And if you stand up to them, then they won't charge you anymore, which does have some truth to it. It's mostly true. But there is a famous um, elephant biologist, Michael Fay. He was in Loango National Park with tourists and there was an elephant And he um, was trying to demonstrate this point that if you stand your ground, they will not charge you or they will not attack you if they charge you. And what happened is that this elephant actually did attack Michael and Tusk went like right through, I think it was like this part of his arm and luckily it missed a really important vein. So he was able to survive, but it was a close call. So these people, they didn't take the elephants seriously. They were doing a lot of things that we would consider dangerous. For example, going into the forest at night, like like hiking the elephant trails at night, which is incredibly dangerous because it's even dangerous during the day. So my second field season was kind of actually really challenging in that regard because I did lose a lot of trust about safety. And I I was concerned about research quality, but luckily we had the field assistants who had been there since the beginning, I believe, stay on board. And they are so amazing. They do such high quality work. So I was able to transition into having the same quality of data as well. So this time, my challenges were working with a very machismo men at time, I almost said women, who were constantly trying to one-up each other with unbelievable stories, really honestly, like unbelievable stories of uh, their encounters in the field, which I'm sure were highly exaggerated. And it was, it got lonely it was frustrating. It was hard to be around those kind of people. Whereas before I was, I was with really down to earth people, really super friendly people. And again, like a lot of people ask me about the challenges of field work. And my field work is different because I did do a lot of driving, not as much actually like hiking on the trails as many other types of field work. But one of the things that I tell people is the most challenging about fieldwork is the isolation and the loneliness. I was there for four months each time. And before I went, I was like, okay, it's just a semester. I can I can spend a semester in Gabon with just a couple of people. But day in, day out, you really do start to, to get a little stir crazy. I'm not a big reader. I read so many books during that field season. This is actually a really funny story. So at that time, Twilight was really popular. I think they were even doing the movie. And in a lot of these field locations, they have where you can take a book and leave a book. So as people, they don't want to carry the weight of books around them. People usually pack pretty light. So you can take a book and then you leave one that you've read. So I came across Twilight 
And I was like, I heard a lot about this. I, I'm going to give it a try. And I'm totally being uh, vulnerable and em- embarrassed inside, but I feel like I should reveal this to you because it's funny. I was like just so engaged in it. I think I also was was so alone <laughs> that it just was like such an exciting story for me. And it was just like, I don't know. I just really liked it. But trust me, I like high quality things too. I like really good books and really good movies. So anyway, I was talking to my fiance at the time about it. And I was like, I'm just loving this book. And he's like, okay. And I, I never recommended it to him, but he decided to take it upon himself to get it. And when he started reading it and read the part about vampires glittering, he was just like, oh my God, Stephanie, this is just so stupid. <laughs> so I definitely laugh at that story. I love it. Um, so I read a lot of books, but it was also, yeah, it was just it was just lonely. And something I'm interested in talking about on the podcast is dealing with depression and anxiety in the field because I definitely have a, a, a history of mental health, a history of mental health in my family. And when I was doing my Confusion to Clarity course, a lot of people opened up to me about anxieties, especially anxieties in the field. And a few of them were saying that they they had a lot of problems doing field work and they weren't sure, like with the isolation and everything, and they weren't sure if they were cut out for this career and they could do it again. So that might be a future topic I talk about. Let me know. Give me some feedback if that's something that you want to hear about. So an interesting story of what happened to me that didn't involve animals was that There was a lot of politics going on at the field station. People were not getting along. And I won't go into too much detail, but we stayed at the field station every single night. And for the most part, it was just me and a couple other people. One night, it was me and another researcher only. And we got an invitation to go to town and have um, drinks with people at night with some some other scientists at the Wildlife Conservation Society. So I, like I said, we never left the compound at night. We stayed there every night. And, and this wasn't like late at night. So it's equatorial Africa. So sunrise and sunset, it was like 6.30 every day. So after dark. When we came back from that, I will never forget this. It was so surreal. We drove up towards the field station and there was this orange glow on the ground. And I was just like, as we drove closer and closer, it was, it was, it was a fire. It was burned. It was burned wood. And it was completely covered this square area, a rectangular area of one of the ca- where the cabins was. And it was a cabin that somebody had another problem with. So we suspect that it was intentional. But the cabin had fully burned to the ground. Everything in it burned. You could see the ceramic toilet. And then the bottom was just like all like hot coals. It was so surreal so unbelievable, so crazy. So just a very weird field story. And a lot of wildlife biologists will actually tell you when they're asked the question, 
what are you most scared of? Usually people, when they ask that question, they say like, what animal are you most scared of in the field? And almost always people say the people. If you listen to my interview with Christina Lynn, she definitely said the people. And a lot of times you're in these really remote areas and you find a person out in the middle of nowhere and it can be scary. In this situation, yeah, we were in a remote area and it was, honestly, it was scary, even though nothing was done to me intentionally. Of course, I wasn't hurt. It was just strange feeling knowing that this was likely intentional because there really wasn't anything that could have caused it or we couldn't find anything. The police actually did investigate it and some other people investigated too and, and were, did not find something that was an obvious cause. So an interesting story from the field for sure. On the positive side, I also had something happen to me really, really, really cool during the second field season. Now, if you remember when I was doing my field site visits in the first podcast episode on this, I'll make sure to put it in the show notes, that I went on a tracking, little tracking uh, trip for mandrels. And these mandrels were collared with transmitters, so the scientists knew about where they were, and we, we went out into the forest to go look for them, and we did encounter a group of mandrels. And this was really cool because mandrels, it's, you know, it's really hard to see them. You can't really see them in, in many places in the world. Gabon is like one of the best places to see them. So this was just so cool to to see them in front of us. However, they moved super fast. There was a lot of forest. I only got like one picture where you can even tell that it is a mandrel. I'm looking this up right now. Mandrels, you can find them in Cameroon, Gabon, Equatorial Guinea, and Congo. That's the Republic of Congo. So not a lot of different places. The cool thing about mandrels, they make these amazing vocalizations and they also get into really gigantic groups, like seriously, some of the largest groups formed in primates, like up to over a thousand individuals. Actually, I'm reading about them now and the largest group was 1,300 individuals, an estimate, and that was in Lope National Park, where I worked. So for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, mandrills are primates. They kind of look like baboons, but they are in their own genus now. And mandrills are the primates that have, the males have these really beautiful, colorful faces with a, with a pinkish red nose and a horizontal, like downward stripe, and then blue on the sides. They're very gorgeous animals. So I intentionally looked for these mandrels during my first field site visit, and I was so grateful to be in the midst of a group. But one day, we were I was driving around the park with my field assistant, and I believe we had collected dung that day. So we were just driving around now looking for elephants. 
And we heard something in the forest just next to the car. So we were, I remember there was savanna on one side and there was forest on the other side. And this was actually really close to uh, Lope Town. It was on the, on the way to Lope Town. So farther away from the field station and more towards the village. And we heard just this amazing, amazing sound. We stopped the car and we just waited. And the sound kept growing more and more and more. And then all of a sudden, there were mandrels like everywhere, just right next to the car. They were just I mean, in, in the trees, obviously, but just like right next to our car window. We had just like the best view of them. And again, there were hundreds of individuals. I mostly saw females and young males. I don't think I saw, no, I did, I did see a big, a big um, mandrel. I do remember seeing the face, but I don't have any pictures of that. I will, I'll dig up my mandrel pictures and, and show you the youngsters. But their vocalizations, they just reminded me of like, what a human sacrifice would sound like. I know that's awful to say, but it was just like so eerie. And this podcast, I'll try to add add some vocalizations of, of what they sound like if I can get them. But it was just such a cool experience, so special to me. That was one of my favorite things about my second field season. So that about ends my second field season. And if you remember in past episodes, I talked about working in Luongo to be able to try to work with the elephants that I had the telemetry data for. That never panned out. I never had the chance to work at Luongo. It was just logistical issues. There's really only one place to work out of. It's an ecotourism lodge, actually, which is really nice. But the timing just never worked out for us. But it ended up being better because... It was really hard to recite the elephants in the park in Lope, so it was much better to get more data on the individuals in one park rather than um, fewer data points from more individuals in uh, two parks. You'll also remember that I talked about trying to get the blood samples and that I was so excited that people did have the blood samples. So these were little smears of blood put on filter paper and they went along with the elephants that we had GPS data for in the park. And we wanted to see if elephants that overlapped more with each other in time and space were more related to each other. I had the samples in my hand. I was looking at them. They were in a Ziploc bag. I could see them. They had, I could see the blood smears on them. I could see the pencil marks on the filter paper with the names of the elephants that I had been studying, that I had worked so hard to figure out their, their home range overlap values. But unfortunately, I could not bring the samples back with me to do DNA analysis because of a technicality. We could not get the research permit uh, to export these samples. So for elephants, you need a CITES permit. And we needed the original research permit to go with it to be able to get the CITES permit. But this study was conducted before there was an official permitting office in Gabon. So there was no formal permit. So we couldn't get it. It was impossible. 
And it was just so frustrating because especially when you when you go uh, back into the United States and you you claim your samples, it's actually really funny because you have these like like the suitcases full of dung samples and and they ask you, well, actually, before I did this, I was like so nervous about going through and I was like, oh, my God, they're going to ask me all these questions. And even though I didn't do, you know, I did everything properly, but you're just like, I don't know, it's your research and your your eight months of your work is is tied up in these samples. And I just remember the the person was like, you study elephants? This is crazy. You're bringing elephant poop samples. And <laughs> I guess you studied like chickens and, and, and I was like, yeah. And they never even checked my bags. So it was just, it was just so frustrating that I couldn't get those blood samples because it would have been a really great addition to my research. But I would never want to do anything illegal for the sake of science. It's just not worth it. So unfortunately, I had to leave those blood samples in Gabon. Now for the last part of my research. And this involved actually taking all the dung samples that I collected. So I had collected, I think, yeah, over 200 fresh dung samples from forest elephants. I put them in tubes with a solution and you actually had to boil the elephant uh, dung in tubes and in a hot bath of water before I put the solution in there and that was to kill off any um, pathogens, any potential pathogens to import them in the United States. So when what I brought back to Missouri with me were, were these tubes of what we would call dung slurries. <laughs> I'll put a picture, I'll put a picture on, on the show notes and they had number on them and you shake them up and it has like chunks of like eaten grass by by forest elephants and the solution you put it in. So when I got to Missouri, the, the steps that we had to take was first to extract the DNA. So you want to get rid of all of the plant material and you want to focus on isolating the elephant DNA. So you have to go through a process that takes two days. You actually have to go to a separate extraction room. So again, it's lonely. I went from my lonely field season to the lonely extraction lab. And the reason why you have to do that is because you don't want to contaminate any of the other projects in the room so or, or, or have your samples contaminated. So you had to do this in the extraction room where you can make sure that your samples were all protected. So two-day process for these samples, and you can only do like... I think I did like 15 at a time, something like that. So for 200 samples, you know, it takes it takes weeks and months to to process all the samples. Then once we had the samples and extracts, it's just they're just in these little tubes and it's just like a little it's like halfway full of extract and the extract looks just like water. You could never tell it came from an elephant's behind from their elephant poop. And then we use these extracts to amplify the elephant DNA. So we had questions that we were looking for. We had questions about how elephants were related to each other. And then we had questions about their sex. So were we getting males or females? 
For the relatedness, we had maternal DNA. So that's mitochondrial DNA. And that will tell you elephants that share the same matril line. So you get your uh, mitochondrial DNA from your mother always. So that is passed down in that way. And then we had microsatellite DNA, and these are, are really short, repeating sequences of DNA in in that have repeating nucleotides. So they have the same pattern of like so, so like C A C A C A. So your DNA is made up of A's, T's, C's, and G's, and these are thought to mutate faster, and so therefore they are good indicators of relatedness. And the, the markers are based on the number of the repeated patterns. And we did PCRs. So basically, um, polymerase chain, chain reaction, what it does is it amplifies the DNA. It is a series of heating and cooling that mimics cell replication in your cells. That really what happens in your cells. When this was invented, this revolutionized scientific research. So we were able to to create a little, we actually called it a little cocktail that was designed to amplify the elephant DNA that we wanted to. And then afterward, we would run our results on a gel electrophoresis, which is like this gelatin slab like for real it looks like gelatin you put it in this solution and you put a charge in it and it separates the dna into pieces because it's hard to move through a gelic substance it like slows you down imagine swimming in pudding as opposed to swimming in water so if you're a really big piece, you're going to get stuck towards the top. You're not going to move all the way down the gel. But if you're a little piece, you can go fast through that thing. So for some analyses, like like um, looking at the sex of the elephants, that's all we had to do was run it in the gel. And um, you could tell by the number of bands if it is a male or a female elephant. But everything else we had to send off to the core to get it sequenced. And then we would look at the results of either the actual letters of the DNA sequence for mitochondrial DNA or the numbers of repeats for nucleotide DNA. So that's a lot of detail, but I just wanted to tell you all the different processes that we had to go through. Now, with microsatellite DNA... Because we are working with non-invasive samples, so that means we are working with dung samples, hair samples, or feather samples, basically anything that is not tissue, you're not going to get as good of a source of DNA. So it's possible that your, your animal could have one kind of DNA signature, but part of it just didn't amplify. So for the biker satellites, to confirm the patterns, we had to run ones that were heterozygous that means your your the alleles match each other so if you use an example of like in school when you're taught the punnett square of usually brown eyes versus blue eyes you have one allele coming from your mom and you have one allele coming from your dad 
So the same is true for these microsatellites, but we need to confirm those patterns. So if they were, so say for that Punnett Square example, you had a blue allele from your mom and a brown allele from your dad, that would be heterozygous. But if you had a blue allele from both, that would be homozygous or the same. So for homozygous results, we had to confirm this three times. So we had to replicate all that process besides the extraction three separate times. Heterozygous, we had to do twice. But the horrible thing about working with non-invasive genetics is that a lot of times it doesn't work because you don't have the best quality of DNA to begin with. I had to do so many repetitions and depending on the sample too, like sometimes I saw an elephant poop in the field and I knew that sample was from that elephant. And for some reason I couldn't get it to work. So that was really, really frustrating. And I had to play a lot around with the protocols. Sometimes I had to reduce my DNA concentration. Sometimes I had to increase it. But basically, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time spent in the lab. And I did have to uh, discard some samples that I really cared about. I couldn't include them in my study, which was heartbreaking because I spent so much time collecting those samples, but that's just the nature of non-invasive genetics. Before we go, I cannot leave this episode without talking about what you can do for elephants. This is for all elephant species, but mostly the African elephants. They really need our help because, as I mentioned before, they are heavily, heavily being poached even to this day. Okay, so what can you do to help elephants? They are currently endangered. Well, it depends on what species you're talking about, but African forest elephants, Asian elephants are definitely endangered. And I'm going to start off with the most effective thing you can do to help elephants and move into some easier things to do. But by far, the most effective thing that you can do today is to donate money. I know that's boring, but what this money does is it pays for rangers, which are boots on the ground. And the more people that we have on the ground in these national parks to protect the elephants, the less likely poaching is going to happen. In our national parks, or at least here in the United States, We have strict rules about who can enter the parks. And poaching does happen, but you don't hear about it that much. But people know where the national parks are. They don't just start chopping down forests in the national park or, or building something there. But in a lot of other countries, their parks are what are called paper parks. So on a map, they'll have a national park designation. But in reality, there's not a lot of enforcement or wildlife protection. And in Gabon, the country where I work in, there is mostly forested areas without extensive road or trail systems. So a lot of the parks aren't even accessible. Therefore, it's really easy for forests or for poachers to get into these parks, kill elephants, and for them to leave without anyone noticing. So if you can pay organizations to put rangers in place to be able to protect the elephants, that is honestly the most effective thing you can do. I recommend three organizations, the um, Wildlife Conservation Society, that's who I worked with when I was doing my PhD research, the World Wildlife Fund. I didn't work with them directly, but we worked alongside those researchers. They had areas um, divvied up of Gabon, so the different organizations didn't overlap. 
and the African Wildlife Foundation as well. They're all great. Okay, the next thing that you can do, probably in terms of effectiveness as well, but this one's easy, and that is spread the word. A lot of people don't know that elephants are being poached. And for forest elephants, this is especially true. It is hidden poaching. Because it's in the forest, you can't see that it happens. In countries like Kenya and South Africa, where most of the habitat is savanna, you can have helicopters or planes fly over and see elephants dead or alive. So if you have a poaching problem, you know about it right away. Now drones are even starting to replace that. You can also see the poachers easily too. They have poaching camps. So if there's fires coming, you can be able to tell, okay, that's a poaching camp from air. In the forest, again, it's so much harder to see that stuff. You can't see the carcasses. You can't see the poaching camps. You may see fires, but is it coming from a village or is it coming from the poacher's camp? You you don't know. It is so much harder to do that. So elephants historically went through, or at least since almost my lifetime, a little bit before my lifetime in the 70s, I was born in the 80s, but there were waves of poaching that really reduced the elephant populations. And then I remember, I think in the 90s, Kenya taking a big stance and they burned their ivory that was confiscated from poachers. And they did so because they wanted to send a message to poachers that that they were no longer tolerating this. Their country was taking a stance against poaching. They, along with some other methods, they actually did reduce their poaching. Some of the method, methods were controversial, but maybe we can talk about that in another episode. But it was effective. And when I started my my PhD, I, or when I was in Kenya, actually, I was in Kenya in 2003, you definitely, we didn't talk about poaching in the parks that we, that we worked closely in because there just, there just wasn't really poaching there. The problem was taken care of. But starting in about 2008, 2010, my lab mate started studying elephants in Kenya and she saw a poached elephant and the problem had increased again. Now in Central Africa, poaching has always been a problem, but it's again, secretive, harder to see. In Asia, poaching is a problem, but not as much so as in Africa. Rather, their problems are more about human-elephant conflict, which is also a problem in Africa. But elephants crop raid. They can destroy parts of people's homes or farms or livelihoods. So that's a bigger problem there, which, of course, can lead to retaliation killings. But that is more of a separate episode. So just letting people know that this is going on. For forest elephants, they decline. Oh my God, I can't remember the statistic, but they declined, I want to say, I think 70% of their range. I'll put the paper in the notes that they declined by that much just in the last like 10, 20 years since the study came out. So um, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. So this is happening. Spread the word. Make sure people don't buy ivory. A lot of people go abroad and they are 
tricked into buying ivory. I was in a market in Galbon and I played dumb. I said, actually, they said to me, this is ivory. And I said, well, aren't the elephants killed for ivory? And they said, no, they're, they're shed, their tusks shed. And I said, no, I'm pretty sure I think the elephants are killed for it. And then he was like, no, they actually find them dead. So they naturally, they find an elephant dead of natural causes and then they take the tusks. That is not true. Elephants are going, their populations are in huge decline. They might become extinct just from poaching for ivory. They are killed, the bodies are left there, and the tusks are hacked off. So spread the word, don't buy ivory, and help these organizations donate money. The third way is you can write to your government. So you can write letters to your senators, to the White House here in the United States, to your representatives to tell them to tell you to tell them that you care about endangered species worldwide. And the United States actually does give money to combat wildlife trafficking. It is number three trafficked item after drugs and guns. So it is a really serious issue and it's also really heavily tied to those to those illegal businesses as well. And the Obama administration at one point donated $10 million to help combat poaching. And it was also related to terrorism that was happening in those countries as well. So even if you don't care about the animals that much, which is not you because you're watching this, of course you care about the animals, but you can use that as an argument for other people about why we need to combat poaching because it also helps people in those countries. It helps reduce terrorism. The last way that you can help out is by taking actions to reduce your carbon footprint, help other people reduce their carbon footprint. Climate change affects every single animal on the planet, every single one. You ca- it can't escape it. For forest elephants, a study just came out that used my data and showed that the fruits were changing over time. So this is using decades worth of fruiting data and elephant identifications. And they found that the elephants were becoming skinnier with climate change effects because the it changed the climate change is changing the phenology or the fruiting patterns of the trees. And the forest elephants mostly eat fruit and they basically can't get enough to eat. So your climate change carbon your climate change, your carbon footprint matters and it affects animals that do not live even anywhere close to you in Asia and Africa for sure it's going to make places drier which will definitely kill off populations of of elephants or at least large numbers of individuals because of drought and Kenya went through a really bad drought I think like a decade ago and the droughts are just going to get worse as well so really do your part to reduce your carbon footprint but more importantly vote for people who take climate change seriously because although it's important we all do this together, what is really going to have the biggest impact is systemic change. Change for the big companies, change on a large scale level. So voting is the most important thing that you can do. That was a long one, but it was really fun. I love talking about research, stories from the field. Let me know if you guys liked it. What else do you want to hear from from me? This week on YouTube, make sure you do check out that mountain lion commentary um, to see the full deal of what was going on with that hiker and that mountain lion in Utah. 
If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, you need some help, you don't know what what career to, to take, or you don't know um, what step to take next, or you have even no idea where to start, get my book, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology, what it's like and what you need to know. It's on Amazon, and I wrote it just for you guys to help you out in this crazy career. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to be kind to each other, to be kind to animals, and remember to vote. If you're in North Carolina, get out there. Early voting has started yesterday. Vote, vote, vote. Bye.